0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, from the archives, one of our favorite segments talking about a trek in the Himalayas. We spoke with Pico Iyer about Peter Matheson's exploration of suffering, impermanence, and beauty in his classic book, The Snow Leopard. It's available now in paperback from Penguin Classics. But first, how right-wing culture warriors are trying to close the public library in one American small town. Sasha Abramsky will report in a minute.
1: Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky, soft, and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW. Plus, free shipping on orders over $60.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early. So everyone can go home on time. There's Granger offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Public libraries are often wonderful places, but they've become targets of right-wing attack in the culture war for that story, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. Of course, he writes regularly for The Nation. His work has also appeared in The Atlantic, The Village Voice, and Rolling Stone. He's written many books, including The American Way of Poverty and The House of 20,000 Books. His new cover story for The Nation is titled The Small Town Library That Became a Culture War Battleground. We reached him today at home in Sacramento. Sasha Abramsky, welcome back. It's good to be on, John. Libraries, they're often indispensable places for lots of people. They're not just repositories of books. In a lot of poorer neighborhoods, they're often the nicest and the safest place a kid or a family can go. Kids can get help with homework. They and their families can use the computer. People can learn English. They can get help with official documents, immigration and citizenship, unemployment and social security i'm reading here from the los angeles public library website but lots of public libraries do this sort of thing and there's one other thing it's all free it's for everybody provided by the city or county it's like an island of socialism in the middle of dog-eat-dog capitalist america one friend told me if you want to find the socialist in fargo go to the library and of course libraries also have books including children's books and those are the books that have become the targets of attack by republican culture warriors for example attacks on the library and the librarians in dayton washington that's what you wrote about for the nation first of all where is dayton and how did this all start
2: dayton's a tiny little community in the southeast corner of washington state it's about as far from any of the big cities um, in the region as you can get Um, it's about a four-and-a-half, five-hour drive east of Portland, Oregon. It's about a four-hour drive from Boise, Idaho. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's got a few thousand people, and it's got this lovely library. It's a New Deal-era library. It was built in the 1930s after a huge amount of fundraising in the community. It's had this really good run for 75 years, but as you said, now it's under attack by a sort of group of cultural warriors who don't like the content of some of the books, and I've reached for a sort of nuclear option of shutting down the entire library or trying to shut down the entire library.
0: Now, I understand from your piece that the attacks on the library in Dayton, Washington, are part of a national campaign inspired by an organization called Moms for
2: Liberty. What is Moms for Liberty and how big is it? So Mumps for Liberty started in 2021 in Florida, and it grew out of parents' rights movements around the pandemic, essentially, people who didn't want their kids out of school, people who didn't want their kids to be vaccinated, people who didn't want to have to wear masks and so on. And it's morphed and grown over the last two, three years. And so now it's this organization with hundreds of chapters around the country, and it's very influential in school board elections and the Republican Party, presidential hopefuls sort of make... A sort of homage to the moms for liberty going to attend their conferences and so on and it's more from being just about the pandemic to being about the sort of great cultural war issues at the moment around race and around gender and around sexuality so basically what they do is they go around looking for quote-unquote offensive books that talk about issues of sexuality to young kids and talk about issues of race in a critical way And then they highlight these books and they go after the libraries and the librarians and they work to get those books removed from the bookshelves or marginalised by being sort of put out of reach of children in in the libraries. And more nefariously, I mean, it's one thing to have a debate over the books, but more nefariously, these... anti-library groups have morphed into really personalized attacks against librarians. They accuse um, school librarians and public librarians of being paedophiles or of grooming children. They use this very loaded, very um, guaranteed-to-stoke-outrage kind of language. And that's what I found fascinating in Dayton, that it's this little community with a ginned-up culture war, basically. It's got a few books in the library that talk about sexuality, that deal with issues of transsexual uh, identity in particular. And those books have caused such a brouhaha that you now have this organization. It's led by a young woman called Jessica Ruffcorn. You now have this organization of locals that, as I said, it reached for the nuclear option. They basically said, look, if you're not going to remove these books, we're going to try and put forward a citizen initiative to be voted on to defund the entire library district. (laughs) This is extraordinary. Imagine having the sort of hubris to think that you have the right to shut down your community's library simply because it's stocking books that you view to be a little bit offensive.
0: In your piece, you point out that there are forces on the left that also target uh, some books and some authors. Uh, Some authors are accused of cultural appropriation or ethnic stereotyping or other offenses, But you say there's a difference between the left efforts to target and ban
2: some books and what the right has been doing. What is the difference? Yeah, well, let let me be absolutely sort of upfront on this. I have no truck with book banning. I don't care whether it comes from the left wing or the right wing. It's misguided, it's bigoted, and it impoverishes us culturally. We shouldn't be a community that's so fragile that if we don't like a book, our immediate solution is to ban that book or to cancel the author. So I'm not in any way, shape or form defending left wing book banning. I I think it's just as toxic as right wing book banning. But I do think there's a structural difference. And the structural difference is that the Democratic Party as a whole has not bought into book bans, whereas the Republican Party as a whole now is using this to whip up an electoral base. So when you have an entire major political party that is on board with the project of banning books or limiting what can be taught in schools, you look at the way in which the um, curricula has been restricted in Florida and in various other states, that's a whole different ballgame. And so that's why I think that when the right goes after books at the moment in America, it's far more dangerous than when the left goes after books. And there is another difference as well. Generally, when the left goes after books, it's because those books contain fairly inflammatory racial language. That's that's been the major provocation leading to book banning efforts on the left. Now, I don't think those books should be banned, but I do think there's a difference between being offended by racial language and in the right wing's case, just being uh, offended by marginalized communities. So the right has gone after deeply vulnerable deeply marginalized communities, the transgendered community, the teenage gay community. They've gone after racial minorities. They've gone after basically not groups with influence, but groups already on the margins. Now, that's the quintessential definition of a bully. When a strong person or a strong group goes after a weak person or a weak group, that's bullying. And that's being institutionalized and legislated on by the republican party at the moment and that's why there's a difference and that's why i think it's worth focusing more on what the right wing is doing around censorship because it's far more toxic it's far more destructive
0: so tell me a little bit about the people who are leading this effort first of all to censor and now to close the libraries in this one little town in eastern washington who are the people
2: It's a small group of people religiously motivated on the whole. It's led by a woman called Jessica Rothkorn, who actually worked in a library in the recent past. She's a young mother. She volunteers for the Little League. She's, you know, perfectly pleasant. I met her on the, the stoop of her house and we talked for a while. She's perfectly pleasant when you have that conversation, except when you start talking about the idea of book banning. And suddenly you have this absolutely no compromise approach to book banning. That, you know, is unfathomable to me. And Jessica Ruffgorn and her um, group of um, fellow book banners have ginned up this sort of manufactured crisis. They they identified a handful of books that um, were fairly sexually explicit, not in a titillating way. There was nothing pornographic about it, but they were sexually explicit in an educational way. And they looked at these books and they said they were inappropriate for children. Now, you can have a perfectly legitimate argument as to whether or not that's true. I certainly wouldn't say all of these books were 100% perfect. And, you know, all of these books, I'd be happy with kids of any age reading. Seems to me that there's legitimate room for having a conversation as to whether or not those books should be on kids' shelves and libraries. But it's one thing to have that debate internally. It's another thing to say, well, unless you agree with our demands to move these books, we're going to try and shut down the library that's when you sort of end up in a deeply authoritarian moment and that's what we're seeing we're seeing it in idaho as well just across the state line in meridian idaho and a few other places we're seeing it in michigan we're seeing it in a handful of places around the country now this notion that libraries are the enemy and that librarians are the enemy and that we are so vulnerable to books on library shelves that our default response has to be to close down the library and so I think, you know, you ask who these, who these people are, they start from a place of, you know, a legitimate debating point around what sorts of books should be in libraries, but they finish in this absolutely authoritarian position about defunding libraries and shutting down the choice of other people as to what books they should or shouldn't be able to access. This
0: little town, of course, has a library board that governs the library. Who's on the library board? I assume these are college grads and professionals.
2: The chair of the library board is a very interesting guy called Jay Ball, and he's a mechanic, an auto mechanic. He runs a car repair store in um, Dayton, and he's a lovely guy, and he's been reading books his whole life, and he loves library culture, and he's absolutely committed to the principles of free speech and free expression. So Jay Ball, of course, has also aroused the wrath of the pro-censorship movement because he said, look, it's not a matter of left wing, right wing. This is just a matter of freedom of access to information and he stood firm and he supported the librarian. Um, to me, this is what libraries are about. They're not about elites. They're about ordinary people who realize the importance of knowledge and realize the importance of a free spread of ideas. Um, and someone like Jay Ball to me is, you know, a really important figure in a story like this. And it's, it's, it's what I love doing when I'm doing my journalism. You know, this nonsense, this absolute nonsense that libraries are the purview of an intellectual elite, they're not. Libraries are a democratizing force. O- only in a library do you get people of all different classes, all different backgrounds, all different ages coming together and seeking to acquire knowledge. It's a wonderful thing. And the idea that you would shut down a library because you disagree with the content of a few books, to me that's just unfathomable.
0: You met a fascinating person in this little town of 5,000
2: people Regina Weldert. Tell us about her. So Regina Weldert is a transgender woman in her 70s. And she had been, I believe, a fisheries scientist and then retired and in her 60s transitioned and was now running a coffee roasting company in this little town of Dayton And Regina Wilder said to me, look, I've never had trouble. Nobody's attacked me for my identity before in Dayton. In fact, she said, I've had more trouble when I go to the big cities like Seattle, where people Mm. heckle me and insult me. But then she said, now I feel scared, because suddenly there's this cultural war going on in Dayton, and suddenly intolerance is bubbling up to the surface. And Regina Walder said to me, well, look, if you marginalize the voices of people like me, she said, or if you marginalize the voices of young people exploring their sexual identity or their gender identity, what you do is you push people into the closet, people who are already marginalized, already psychologically vulnerable, already at risk for abuse, already at risk for homelessness, all the things that transgender youth are disproportionately at risk of. And you make it more likely if you invisibilize them, you make it more likely that at the end of the day, they're going to be bad outcomes, that, you know, psychologically bad things are going to happen or that they're going to end up on the streets with no resources to help them. And so Regina Welder said, look, (laughs) I'm in my 70s, but I've got to fight against the censorship movement because it's trying to invisibilize people like me, she said. I think there's this sort of concept that you know, all the issues around gender identity and sexual identity, that that's a big city thing. Well, it's absolutely not true. You can go to any small town, any small community, anywhere in this country. And if you look, you're going to find people exploring those same issues about who they are and how they want to portray themselves to the world. It's not a big town, small town thing. But I think there's this idea among conservatives, among hyper-conservatives in a place like Dayton, there's this idea that, you know, if we can just get rid of a few books everything's going to go back to the 1950s, and everything's going to be easy to understand again. That's absolutely nonsense. You know, you can get rid of those books, but life is going to be just as complicated and just as messy and just as ambiguous today as it was yesterday. We've just made it harder on already vulnerable people.
0: One of the people they made it harder on was the librarian of their town, Todd Vanderbark.
2: What happened to him? he had been attacked again and again and again for defending the sort of right of the library to pick and choose books. And he'd been called a groomer. He'd been called a pedophile. He'd had sort of violent threats against him online. um, He'd been told he should be in prison. He should be in jail. He'd been heckled at public meetings and he stood firm. He stood firm for over a year of this conflict and he made sure the library still had those books at the end of the day, though, he had enough. And a few months ago, earlier this summer, he packed up and left. He accepted a job somewhere else. He said, I've, "I've done it. I've done everything I can here. I, I don't want any more of this," and he left Dayton. And he said to me, "Look, frankly, I've got will, no will interest in going back to Dayton." And I felt terribly sad about this because this was someone who had stood firm, and he had, you know, faced some really quite gruesome personal insults for standing firm. But at the end of the day, he just felt it was too much. And I think this is the danger that you know, even if groups don't succeed in defunding libraries and it's quite likely that that initiative will you know be defeated in november because even conservatives in dayton many of them are very uncomfortable with getting rid of their library but even if the library remains in place at the end of the day the librarian was driven out of office and the interim director who came in and succeeded him immediately moved some of those books that had sort of created such a furore immediately moved some of those books away from the kids section Well, that's bowing to pressure from, you know, really authoritarian, intimidatory movement. And that's an ugly harbinger of what's to come. And I think that that's, you know, that's a real risk that you go around the country from place to place to place. And as these censorship wars heat up, even if they don't formally work, they create enough soft pressure that librarians say, you know what, this isn't worth it. Let me compromise on free speech just a little bit. Let me bow to these demands just a little bit. And that's a really slippery slope. One last thing. What was
0: it like for you to go to this small town in rural Washington and talk to these far right-wing activists whose actions you find so reprehensible?
2: Yeah, I find it fascinating. And I've spent quite a lot of the last few years doing this kind of reporting, where I find these movements and these communities, and I go in and I talk to a lot of people. You know, this is, to me, what makes journalism worthwhile. It's okay to just talk to people that you agree with, but it's boring. It's far more interesting (laughs) and far more productive and it's far more honest intellectually to talk to people from an array of different backgrounds. And it helps you understand where we are. I mean, look, if you want to understand where America is in 2023... If you want to understand the potency of these cultural war issues, uh, look. If you want to understand why Donald Trump is still electorally competitive despite facing six hundred and forty something years in prison, if you want to understand all of those things, you've got to understand these kind of cultural war conflicts that are going on. So, you know, I love I love going to these places. I, I but find surely, it but surely they see you as you know the enemy. You know, it depends. I mean. I have a lot of times people saying, I'm not going to talk to you. I mean, Jessica Ruffkorn originally said to me, I'm not going to talk to you. And I persisted and I just kept asking questions and I kept talking. And, you know, if you talk long enough and if you show an interest in what people are saying, people will talk to you, not everybody. You can have some people who just will not talk to the media, come what may. But you can have a lot of people who after a while do. One of the things that sort of has increasingly struck me as being important about this moment is the dangerousness of our levels of polarisation that we are so sort of confined to our own echo chambers and we're so willing and able to see a political opponent as the enemy. And that's really dangerous. You know, we live in a democracy and we've got to have an ability to, you know, at least have some conversations across ideological divides. So, no, I don't agree with these censorship movements. I think they're really dangerous. And I profoundly hope that these they don't succeed. But I think it's really important to talk with people who do buy into those movements and try and understand where they're coming from.
0: Sasha Bramsky, his article for The Nation, The Small Town Library That Became a Culture War Battleground, is the cover story in the magazine this week. It's in-depth reporting at its best. You can read it online at thenation.com. Sasha, thank you for your work on this, and thanks for Ah.
2: talking with us today. John, I always love talking with you. It's a pleasure.
0: A naturalist treks high into the Himalayas, into a world of snow and silence, wind and blue. The book about that trek, called The Snow Leopard, has become a classic. And the author, Peter Matheson, is one of our greatest writers. Now, that book is being reissued by Penguin Classics with a wonderful new introduction by Pico Iyer. He is the author of many books. He's written about Tibet for The New Yorker, The New York Review, and The New York Times. And now he has his own new book out. It's called The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama. Pico Iyer, welcome back.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here, John.
0: Well, who was Peter Matheson when he went into the Himalayas in 1973? And what was he looking for?
1: He was a Five year old man um, accompanying his great friend George Shallow, one of the country's great biologists. Uh, Pete Matheson was already, uh, as you mentioned, a naturalist who was used to going to remote places in the world. But I think the two things that really animate this journey are, first, that uh, his young wife had just begun to introduce him to Zen Buddhism, and he was beginning to think about what lies behind our thoughts and what lies behind our words. And secondly, uh, that young wife uh, had just died of cancer uh, a few months before. So even as he's going on this trip... um, to ostensibly to look for the, um, the mating habits of the blue sheep in the Himalaya, and also hoping to spot the famously rare and elusive snow leopard. I think what he's really carrying along with him are his dawning understandings about Buddhism and his haunted memory of his young wife's recent death.
0: And the place he went to... I even now have don't know anything about it. Inner <laughs> Inner Dolpo. What what was Inner Dolpo in 1973?
1: No, you're right. I mean, I've spent a lot of time in, around the Himalayas, and I've barely heard of it, and certainly never met anyone else who, who's been there. It's a very very remote area, um, almost unvisited to this day uh, by people. So in that sense, it's probably similar today to the way it was in 1973. So it's really just uh, these two uh, adventurous. From New York and their Sherpas, uh, and uh, the huge snow mountains and wildness and emptiness all around them.
0: So, you have visited uh, some of the high plateaus of the Himalayas. W- w- what are they like? What do you see there?
1: Uh, they're they're as, as exalting and magical, I almost say to my shame, uh, as you would expect. I remember the first time I went to Tibet was in 1985, and I was a writer on world affairs for Time magazine, so I was really determined not to be enchanted. You know, I was, I was a hard-nosed kid, you know, worldly-wise reporter as I saw it, and I was determined not to, be, um, not to be taken in by the images of Tibet that transfix us all. But almost my first day in Lhasa, I remember climbing up to, to a mountain, uh, or rather, actually, to the Potala Palace in the shadow of the snowcaps, And just stepping out on terraces under this intense cobalt sky uh, with shafts of sunlight coming into these little dusty rooms where monks were muttering their prayers. And I really felt carried out of the world I knew and carried out of the self I knew, actually. And I think it's got to do something with the thin air and the high environment, probably culture shock, probably jet lag, too. But it's, it's a strikingly powerful and transporting area.
0: So, you've written a a new introduction to Peter Matheson's classic book, The Snow Leopard. And in that piece, you quote uh, Thoreau, who in the conclusion to Walden, Wrote a very fam- now famous sentence, it is not worthwhile to go round the world to count the cats in Zanzibar. <laughs> uh, I'm sure Peter Matheson is familiar with that uh, 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 f- sentence. Uh, why did he go round the world to count the cats in Inner Dolpo?
1: Well, I think part of the uniqueness of Peter Matheson, which is also the uniqueness of this book, is that he's on the one hand a very very serious naturalist whose first book was Wildlife in America, and who genuinely does have a scientific curiosity about species and um, and places that he's never seen before. At the other, on the other hand, he's also a novelist, and so he's interested in the inner nature, in the invisible nature, in what takes place inside us. And so I think he went on the journey as a naturalist, thinking this was a rare chance to see a part of the globe he'd never seen and uh, creatures that he would never see otherwise. And yet, as he took that first step, he also realized that he was going to go into those places in himself that perhaps he'd always shy away from at home. And, And to go back to your last question, I think the most striking thing for me about the Himalayas is it's, it's, it's very barren, and it's very sparse, and you lose all sense of complication and distraction. And you are really returned to yourself up in those high mountains, especially where he was, because that was very obscure. And there's nowhere to hide. You have to look head-on at your anger, your fear, your pain. And I think that's one thing that he knew that he would get to do when he, when he went on the trip.
0: Well, today, of course, there's a lot of uh, organized uh, hiking um in the Himalayas, and uh, hikers today, of course, make sure they have the the very best high-tech hiking boots. There's a lot of cult boots now. Uh, is that what Peter Matheson did?
1: No, you know, he's, he's a very, um, he likes roughness, and he likes difficulty, and he likes challenge, I think. Um, so although he had this group of porters, Sherpas, that were helping them along on this trip, Interestingly, one of these Sherpas, he regards almost as a demon. Uh, and the trip is into the opposite of comfort and the opposite of security, which I think is exactly what appealed to him as a Zen student and later um, somebody who was ordained as, as a Zen priest. And I know, you know, like many of us, I've read this book five, six times, I think, since, since it came out. And each time it changes and grows, as I do. And I used to think it was just a beautiful kind of quest allegory about somebody going into these radiant mountains and finding truth. And it is that. But what struck me rereading it this time was um, that it's, it's so unvarnished and tough and rigorous a vision of what you find in the mountains. He, he gets intimations of, of great clarity and beauty um, at 18,000 feet. But also what he's getting at every moment is r- reminders of his own imperfection. And even after he comes down from the mountain, it's not into a happy ending. He's still impatient, and he's still uh, greedy by his own reckoning, and he's still scared. And um, in some ways, I think it's a very enlightened view of enlightenment because it doesn't suggest that everything's going to get sorted out.
0: We're speaking with Pico Iyer. He's written the introduction to a new edition of uh, Peter Matheson's classic, *The Snow Leopard*. It's being published by Penguin Classics this month. One of the other fascinating things about this whole project is that um, Peter Matheson was a staff writer for The New Yorker, and wasn't it The New Yorker that sent him to 18,000 feet?
1: Yes, it was, and I think... It's the New Yorker that really schooled him in meticulousness and precision, which I think he had already. But you know, the beauty of this book is that, on the one hand, it's a it's a transporting spiritual allegory; on the other hand, it's full of details. At every moment, just like any scientist, he records the temperature, the altitude, the terrain, uh, what he's passing, and. I think when we think of spiritual books, we often think of books that fly into the clouds, that leave the everyday very quickly behind and, and tell us uh, what we dream of in our kind of Shangri-La visions. But the beauty of this book is that because it was written for the New Yorker, uh, Peter Matheson couldn't take any shortcuts. And he had to bring that reportorial eye and close observation to everything around him, which means that when he does describe uh, transports here, they're very grounded ones. uh, And they're ones that are going to be fact-checked by teams of um, (laughs) colleagues back in New York. And so uh, there's there's a great solidity to his writing that I think is is really rare. You can feel that every sentence um, he's He's run through his mind again and again to make sure it'll stand up to the scrutiny of uh, profess- professional researchers as well as um, to the truth of the experience.
0: So on the one hand, this is a, a book ab- about uh, rare and elusive and exalted uh, landscapes and experiences. But, But in The Snow Leopard, Peter Matheson also tells us that he has an eight-year-old son who he left behind, a boy who... Uh, has already lost his mother, that, that certainly makes him look bad, look, looks like a, he's a bad uh, father. Why do you think he put that in the book?
1: Well, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that, because that's one of my favorite moments in the book, and I've had many discussions with people about it over the years. Just as you say, um, he includes this letter from his son saying, you know, I miss you and I'm lonely, um, please will you come back? And he, he tells the son, don't worry, I'll be back before Thanksgiving. And as the trip goes on and the days keep mounting, you realize that he's not going to be back before Thanksgiving and he's going to have broken his promise to the eight-year-old son. And just as you say, that does show him in a bad light. And, and what impresses me so much is the fact that Peter Mason chose to include that letter. Uh, all of us, every day in our lives, have things happen that uh, show us in a bad light or show us not at our best. And if we're writers, nearly always we're trying to win over... Uh, the, the the reader and show her how how brave and and selfless and heroic we are and so i know as a writer myself when something shows me in a in a bad light my first inclination is to keep it out of the book and the very fact that peter mason puts that incriminating letter in the book tells me that this is a book about candor and about not glossing anything over and, in fact, about going into the difficult parts of yourself. Um, and I know many readers are alarmed that uh, to witness uh, the letter and then to realize that the father is not going to be able to honor his promise. But um, I know most of the great travelers that I read have lots of secrets when they travel. They have companions that they never mention. They have secret girlfriends here and there. Uh, Many of the great travelers can't even drive while they're portraying themselves as heroic adventurers. But Peter Matheson, by including that letter, is saying, I'm going to be up front with you, and I'm going to look at the things that even I would rather not see in myself, probably
0: well you 've already mentioned the the um the sherpa one of the porters who 's a central character in the book and in fact in many ways, the most powerful character in the snow leopard is is not the author it's it 's a different another guy this sherpa who 's one of the porters. Uh, tell us about him, please.
1: His name is Tukten, and he's a very haunting character. You feel that he's got a lot of secrets, that he's probably a little dishonest. He's always fighting with the other porters. Uh, there's something sh- shadowy and, and, and dark and unsettling about him. Yet Peter Mason, again, with that same honesty, looks at this man and he says, well, he's he's almost my familiar. He, it's almost like looking at a reflection of myself. And of course, One of the beauties of the book, The Snow Leopard, is Peter Matheson is determined to see the snow leopard. He never actually sees it. Uh, He's determined to go into the Himalayas to meet uh, a llama or a wise man in a a remote monastery. And, in fact, he walks right past that wise man and doesn't even recognize him. And when he does talk to the wise man, he finds this gritty, down-to-earth soul who's very hardy but doesn't seem to be offering wisdom. And at the same time, in his own group, he has this very slippery, shadowy character whom nobody really trusts, and as the book goes on, Matheson almost begins to suggest that the real teacher is this slippery Sherpa, um, and that in fact, one way or another, he can learn more from this guy than he can from all the wise men that he thinks he's seeking, partly because this slippery man, is uh, Tukten, is so undiluted. And, and Peter Matheson has a wonderful line in which he says, you feel that this man would look unconcerned upon rape or resurrection. In other words, he's kind of like uh, a zen wild man mountain hermit sage who's attained some kind of position in himself where nothing that happens in the world is going to fluster him. And almost against his wishes, Peter Matheson realizes, well, this odd guy may, in spite of himself, be a teacher.
0: So... Uh- in the end, Peter Matheson never sees the famously rare and elusive snow leopard. the The wise man he went to find doesn't impress him very much. Would you say that the book has a happy ending?
1: Yes, I, it's a typically Zen, which means complex and paradoxical and contradictory ending. But really, I think it's about working your way through ambition, among other things. All of us have intentions, destinations when we set out, even when we set upon our day. I want to achieve this. I want to see this and this. And what this book suggests is not finding them is actually a a richer and more spacious kind of conclusion. If Peter Masson had seen The Snow Leopard, he'd have an ending for the book, and it would be a kind of diminishing ending. But what he what he understands as he makes this fairly rigorous, austere ascent is that he doesn't have to see the snow leopard. It's more important to see himself. It's more important to think through his obligations to his late wife and, and his son, that the snow leopard is really a pretext for looking at those things that maybe he would never be able to see uh, if if he was at home. And so I think by shirking the obvious happy ending, he's taking us into something that's much more lifelike and, and, and in some ways... Um, much much more fulfilling. And I think it speaks to anyone who's on a spiritual path, who at the outset may think, I want enlightenment, I want wisdom, I want to find the teacher. And probably the more he proceeds along that, the more he sees, well, enlightenment probably just uh, takes the form of appreciating this cow dung along the street, or the wise man is whoever happens to be around you at the time. And uh, you, you get stripped of your Lofty notions, I think, and I, I, I think that's one reason why the Snow Leopard has been such an enduring book and will continue to endure because, uh, because it's not about it's about not finding the Snow Leopard, and it's about, um, in that sense, disappointment and and coming coming to peace with imperfections.
0: Pico Iyer, his introduction to a new edition of Peter Matheson's classic book, The Snow Leopard, has just been published by Penguin Classics. Thank you, Pico.
1: Thank you, John. Always a delight to talk to you.
0: We spoke with Pico Iyer about Peter Matheson's book, The Snow Leopard, in September 2008. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Rene Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.